going to begin a little differently today. I'm going to ask Yoon to continue to play. I'm going to ask you to sit down. For those of you who may have been wondering, it is always appropriate to salute in or out of uniform. But before I pray, I wanted to say something to the family and friends of our veterans and to our veterans themselves. In my office, there are two photos that serve to sharpen my reflections on the long war. One of a newly widowed woman, seven months pregnant, laying on an air mattress, listening to their favorite music. In the background is a flag-draped coffin, and standing next to it is a Marine, standing at attention in his dress blues. The other picture, my nephew, an OH-58 Kiowa pilot, who was shot down and killed near Kirkuk, Iraq, in 2009. Two pictures over 20 years. Yesterday, I added a third. Marine Corps Sergeant Nicole L. G., 23, of Sacramento, California. She's carrying a tiny child, yellow, red, blue clothing. She's looking into the eyes of that child, not a year old, with eyes of a mother's love. The photographer gave her that picture. She posted it on Instagram with the caption, I love my job. A few days later, she was one of the 13 killed and the 18 wounded. One of the questions that burns in the hearts of many veterans is, what did we do this for? Why did we waste the blood and the treasure? War is the most destructive, pitiless, and merciless activity in all human endeavor. That's not what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say is in that context, the power of camaraderie, courage, and selfless love are also on full display. And it's just there that I wanted to say this to our veterans and those who know them, that some of our most courageous warriors ever produced or known served in ground combat, otherwise known as infantry. Have you ever thought about that word, infantry? Infant, enfant, French, the silent ones. And here's what I want to say to you. You have never, ever had control over any strategic outcome, ever. Our voices are silent in that regard. So our meaning or lack of meaning must come from a different place and it must not rest on what's happening now. Rather, it must rest upon the moments that we all experienced, whether taking fire and digging into the 
dirt or giving a piece of candy or a soccer ball to a child or holding the hand of a wounded warrior, those moments are irreplaceable. And that is where the meaning lies. It's like the child walking down the seashore, throwing the starfish dying in the sun back into the water. The father says, son, there are too many. What you're doing won't matter at all. As the son throws a starfish back into the waves, he replied, matter to that one. Something you did mattered. I want you to take your heart out of the current high-level nonsense that's going on and keep it at eye level. Eye level. The level of Sergeant Nicole G., 23, of Sacramento, California, looking with the eyes of love at a small child who will forever be changed because of what she did and because of what you did. Let us pray. Father, we stand on the edge resting only in your sovereignty. Because those with listening ears understand that I wasn't just talking to veterans. That's life. We have so little control, and yet there are so many things that wash over us, be it hurricane or COVID, be it accident or injury, be it the loss of health, the loss of economic prosperity, whatever it might be. Lord, it's the moments that we keep and those moments that we treasure with you. So, Father, as we continue forward today, as we look into your word, we look into the life of David, a man of war. May we understand and bring back something other than meaninglessness, other than pain and sorrow. We'll give you the praise and the glory. Do your name, only your name. Through Christ our Lord, amen. In, um, in 12th century England, there were, there were two men. One was a royal and one was a commoner. But they became fast, fast friends. They, they hunted together. They, they played chess together. It was said of those who knew them that they had one heart and one mind. And so it was when Henry II became king at the age of 21, he happily made his friend Thomas Becket his chancellor. Both of these guys were furious workers. They were both concerned with law and order, and they brought that to the realm. But I tell you what, there's something else called power. <laughs> and power, if you know anything about Tolkien or his writings, are 
frankly, anybody who's ever written about power will tell you that power is a corrupting influence. Power is only sated, and then only temporarily, by more power. So there was one thing that rivaled the king's power. King uh, Henry II was rivaled only by the church. And the thing is, the church had their own courts. The church had their own lawyers. The church had their own judges. And this, this just galled Henry. And Henry was looking for a chance where he might be able to gain control over both those things. And the day came that it happened. When the Archbishop of Canterbury died, he appointed his good friend and Chancellor Thomas Becket to be the Archbishop. Now he had true power. Power of the state and power of the church. Let's just consolidate these. But something happened that he didn't expect would happen. Becket got religion. (laughs) Becket decided that the church was more important than the state, and so he resigned as chancellor, and this ticked Henry off. I mean, because now Henry was back where he was, and now it was his friend who was now siding with the church, and so Henry said some things and did some things that made Becket upset. And so Becket preached a sermon, and I guess in that sermon, uh, he, uh, he lit a match. He lit a match under Henry. And so when Henry heard about it, and it was reported to him, Henry said, Who will free me from this turbulent priest? And three of his, or four actually, of his knights, without order, without command, they decided, well, we'll take care of this. And so they went to Canterbury. They went into the cathedral, and with Thomas Becket at the altar, they slaughtered him, and they killed him. And, of course, it's a long story, which I won't go into all of it, but understand, truly, Henry had no intention whatsoever of those men to do that. Not at all. And he spent days fasting and mourning and grieving and asking God for forgiveness because he knew he was the proximate cause of the thing. And yet, the words of the powerful carry meaning. What we're going to look at today, not is, if this was a course or a class, or something like that in leadership, I would talk about the the danger of thinking out loud if you're a leader. But this is not that. This is a church service. This is a sermon, and what we're going to talk about is something different, and that is we're going to see how a comment, an idle comment by David, led his men to do something very, very similar except for they did not go after innocent blood, they went after clear crystal water. Now, we're all familiar with the story of David. My, uh, If uh, you were raised in the church, you've been told stories about David from the time you can remember. His life is filled with, with drama, all kinds of 
uh, um, crazy, amazing uh, things uh, from Goliath to being the king. Military campaigns, political intrigues, family tension, betrayal, whatever. It's the story. We have it all. And in First and Second Samuel, we learn that there was a place that David, in the midst of uh, some of his deepest troubles, uh, knew and trusted as a place of refuge. It was very near Bethlehem. Uh, in fact, it was a place where it was easy to hide. Uh, it was easily defensible if necessary, if you were found. It was the cave at Adullam. That's in the Valley of Elah. That's not two miles from where he killed Goliath some years before that. And, and he had been there before, and doubtless he went there many times. Let's look at this. We read of the cave in 1 Samuel. We're going to go to two places in the text today, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 22, uh, it uh, reads, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone, listen, everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now, there were about 400 men with him. Now, that's quite the crew. Who do you want on your crew? I want people who are in debt. I want people who are running from the legal authorities. I want the discontented. That's who I'm going to gather to myself. In other words, those people that David had gathered to him, they had problems. They had difficulties. They were miserable. And yet, it says he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now, we know some of the things that David wrote there. There are many things. I'll only uh, quote just a very uh, brief one in Psalm 142. It says it's a masculine of David when he was in the cave. So he wrote this in the cave. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So while David had found a refuge in the cave, his actual refuge was in the Lord. And then the people found David. All those uh, malcontents, all the outcasts and the misfits. Now before we're too judgmental on them, I, I, I'm going to make a little comparison here, which might make it, well, it made me squirm just a little bit. But then I realized, ooh, it's, it's true, it's true, it's true. That's who we were before we came to Christ. Uh, we would never be together here this morning were it not for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. The fact that we are here means we're gathering unto Him. We're not gathering to a building. We're not gathering to a person. We're gathering there. What we find is, is that they came to that cave, not because there was a cave, there are Thousands and thousands of caves in Israel. All over the place. They came because David was there. We came here this morning because Jesus Christ is here. And they were rejected by the world that they lived in. 
And so are we. John 15 tells us, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. So we're not at home here in the world. We're not at home. Sometimes I have a greater awareness of that than others, but the truth is we are not at home. They came to that cave for refuge. We come to Jesus Christ for refuge because we owe a debt. You don't, oh, Some of you may have thought, well, I wasn't in debt before I came to Christ. Oh, yes, you were. Oh, yes, you were. Romans tells us, Romans 6.23 tells us that the debt was so high that we owed that the wages of that, the penalty for that was death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ paid that debt for us. And so these outcasts were in the cave with him. And they were a disparate bunch of, of, of folks. But under David, it says he became their captain. And under David, they became something, someone to contend with. Under his authority, they were literally transformed. You know, the names that we see in that cave of malcontents ended up being the names of many of the rulers over Israel. In the same way, I mean, it's my prayer that this fellowship here is the cave of Adullam for you. Not simply because you've run here for refuge, but because under the authority, not of David, but of Jesus Christ, you will become something, someone. You will do something. We read in Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In the time of trouble. Under their captain, they were transformed. So much so, that instead of simply becoming a place of escape, it became a place of... a place of adventures, a a place of exploits, a place of doing deeds uh, that were great and mighty... 2 Samuel 23, 13 through 17, where we'll spend the remainder of our time, reads this. And, and three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, the stronghold, that's the the caves in the surrounding area there. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it uh, and brought it back to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. 
these things the three uh, mighty men did. So the, the cave was not simply a sanctuary. It was a place of transformation where they then went out with deeds of courage. But while in the cave, at least at this one point, David developed this consuming uh, desire for the taste of water, which was at the well at Bethlehem's gate. Uh, That was just a few miles away uh, that had once been his home. I mean, he would go out, he would tend the sheep when he would come back in. That's where he would get the water from. He would come in tired and he would get the water from there. It was such a joy for him. And he was so overpowered by remembering those uh, days that he would do that and, and thinking of it that he longed, he said, oh, that one would give me water to drink of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the, the gate. Now, if that's not the cry of a homesick heart, I, I don't know what is. But the reason I choose this incident from the life of David, we could spend a year on David's life, but I choose this incident because I believe it is the or certainly one of the most tender moments. One could argue that that Jonathan's uh, death would be next to that, but this is certainly one of the most tender moments that we know of in his life. Never was David more truly human from our perspective than here longing for a drink from uh, Bethlehem's well. And it is a longing that we can that we can all understand because David felt and experienced the thoughts and the feelings that are actually in our hearts. I mean, there, there's no man, there is no man or woman in this room or in the sound of my voice who cannot at one time or another say with Job, and yes, Job said this in chapter 29 too, Oh, oh, that it were as it was months of old as in the days when God watched over me. That's what David was longing for. David did not desire merely water, or even water from the well at Bethlehem. There was water where he was at. But to drink its water as it was in the days of old, that is to restore Bethlehem to himself, to restore Bethlehem to Israel, that was now garrisoned by the Philistines. He was sick about this. Uh, And I think so it is for the sojourner. And all of us are sojourners, but to some it's more poignant and more direct. At times our hearts turn back toward home. But we can't can't attain it. And I know this is going to be the turmoil, turmoil that many Afghans will will feel, I mean, because even if they wanted to, and even if they remained, it it will not be their home anymore. We easily read here enough between the lines to comprehend that the thirst of David was not so much the parched throat, but it was deep in his spirit. His spirit was wounded He was so near Bethlehem, he could walk to it in a matter of a couple of hours if it weren't, you know, controlled by the the Philistine. And as he's thinking about all this, I am 
Well, I'm not certain. You can't be certain about these things. But my belief is, is that those words came out of his mouth not intending to be heard by anybody. In other words, he wasn't telling his men, I want a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem. He was probably in the corner on his knees praying, Oh God, oh God, I long for the water by the well of Bethlehem. And those who were close heard this. They overheard. They waited for no command, no trumpet, no reinforcements. They went and they risked their lives that David might have his wish. And unlike, as I said before, Henry's knights, they did not go seeking innocent blood, but rather the pure cold water that they believed could slack their captain's thirst. Now I want to look at this for just a second. Understatement in the Bible is... Just an amazing thing. I always think, when I think of that, Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel was probably one of, from a hydraulic perspective, right, one of the wonders of the world. One of the wonders of the world. And the Bible says, and Hezekiah dug a tunnel. I mean, this, you know, and that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. And here we have this. We have this event... And it says that they broke through. They broke through. And the literal meaning there is to rip apart, to split, to cleave. In other words, I can only infer from that that there's plenty of good words in Hebrew, oh, by the way, for being sneaky or being stealthy, slipping in and slipping out. That's not what it says. They broke through. They ripped it apart. They went in, they got the water, and I infer from that bloodshed. They cleared a path. They returned to the cave to present the crystal clear water to David. And based on that phrase, and I don't think it's a stretch, but if, if you take another opinion, that's fine. But based on that phrase, I imagine this is how the rest of it went. David looked at his, those three mighty men in front of him, likely blood yet on their swords, perhaps even a wound or two, bound but red with blood. And he looked at them with astonished humility. And the Bethlehem water, which he now held in his hand, meant nothing in comparison to that. He didn't think of it because he couldn't drink it. Not that it meant nothing, but that he was not worthy to drink it. He was not worthy to have it. Only God was worthy, and so he poured it out before the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Yahweh, O Lord, that I should do this, shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Now, to most of us, unless you're watering grass or pouring water uh, or something along those lines, pouring water on the ground seems like a, yeah, it's a waste, but, eh, 
you know, if you saw somebody pouring water on the ground, you're not going to go up to them and smack them upside the head and say, you know, that could have saved somebody's life. You know, it came out of a spigot. Uh, that's not the way it was in the ancient Near East. Water, water was everything. Water was precious. Water was something that you would go to war for. You can read in the Bible how wars and battles were fought over wells. But I could see those three mighty men from a Western perspective saying, what do you, (laughs) excuse me, David, what do you mean you're not going to drink it? I mean, what's up with that? We risk our lives to get you what you wanted and you're not going to drink it? You're just going to pour it out? Why did we do this? Why did we risk our lives for this? I guarantee you that's not what they were thinking. Because David's actions are only confusing because uh, we don't have the same value system. Or at least we haven't lined it up right. And that's what I'm fixing to do is put those things in order. We're going to consider three elements very briefly. The water, the mighty men, and the drink offering. So many of us showered this morning, uh, or we went to our little refrigerator with our little glass, and we we pushed it, and the the nice, filtered, clean, bacteria-free water came through, and and we we drank it. Uh, Modern societies do take water for granted, and as I said, in the ancient Near East, that wasn't the case. It was precious. And then there are the mighty men. In America, we place a high value on life. I believe that as a nation, we are collectively grieving for what's going on right now in Afghanistan. As a former chaplain who's conducted over 30 death notifications, I know what happened Friday night. I know what they looked like. I know how they responded And so for some, others, depending on their levels of involvement, they're grieving perhaps more. But I believe we are all touched because we hold the sanctity of life, such high value. And David certainly recognized the life of his mighty men. He actually equated the water from Bethlehem's well with the blood that his three warriors had risked. We might say, then don't throw it away. Why did he do that? Why did he pour it into the ground? There's this third thing. The value of an offering. I mean, and this can only be understood by those of you who are people of faith. can only be understood by those of you who understand and comprehend who God is. And the reason for that is, if you don't believe that God exists, or that He cares, or that He will move in your behalf, or that He is anything other than a notion, why would you give Him anything? Goodness gracious. We don't pass the plate here, but if we did, put in your two cents and feel good. Yeah. No. These men... They understood that God was there, that he was present, that their very lives were dependent upon 
him, that the very future of the nation rested on the shoulders of God Almighty. We believe that God is great, and God is loving, and God is powerful. Most importantly, that Jesus Christ came and gave his life for us to give us life, then with Paul, we will gladly pour out our lives for him. You remember the Apostle Paul? My life is being poured out as a drink offering. You see, David understood that the water in his hand was at least as precious as the blood of his mighty men, the ones whom he trusted most. And I can only imagine how overcome with honor they were as they understood that their gift to David was so precious to David that it became David's gift to God. And he poured it out to God. Only a person of faith can be touched by this. And here it is in this cave that out of David's longing, he found hope. He knew these men would do anything to regain Bethlehem. They would do anything to restore the kingdom of Israel. He also found hope in God. And my prayer for you today is that you drink of the water of Bethlehem, Bethlehem's own, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and may that quench that thirst in your heart and your life forever. And may you find a place of rest and a place of refuge and a place where you can recover from your wounds, a place where you can grow strong in the Lord and a place where you can go from this place and bring others who are in debt, not accepted, those rejected by the world to safety. May you, in short, come to know him today. Father, we thank you for the life of David. Lord, we know full well that he was a complicated man, that he was a, in several places, a poor image bearer of him as a type of Christ. But through it all, he was a man who understood what you wanted from him. He was, as we're told, a man who was after your own heart. And so we look at this one piece of his life. Likely one of the most precious memories that he was able to take with him through his life. And the memory as recorded that we can take courage from as we face 
our own challenges in the day. We thank you. We praise you. We give you the honor and the glory due exclusively to your name. Amen.